The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Since the garden, man's original sin has perverted his relationship with and perception of the one living God. Yet even in his rebellion, mankind has not been able to shake off his inherent desire to worship, whether it be polytheism, pantheism, atheism, or gaytheism. Man will and must worship something. How does this reality reveal unto us the triune God's design for his revelation unto humanity? What might we conclude about man's only hope in Jesus Christ? Today, we'll see what Calvin has to say on these things in chapter three of his Institutes, whilst also enjoying a brew that hits close to home and attempting on another episode to convince you that you need to use real wine in the Lord's Supper. We pray that, as always, you may know your doctrines and know your grains. Almost heaven. West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Okay, all right. So, sorry. All right. This, this was this, this was a. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Doctrines of Grains podcast. We are so happy you're here. I apologize for how strange that might have been. It was a test, and here's why it's a test. Oh, well, good. Uh, it was a test for uh, Pastor Seth Dean here because tonight we will be reviewing a beer that does hit close to home. But it, how does it tie into Country Roads Take Me Home? Well, most people have no idea how uh, rich of a controversy this is for West Virginians and Western Virginians. Yes. Uh, I was made aware of this through my brother and sister-in-law um, that John Denver's famous song, Country Roads Take Me Home, um, many people think the whole song is about West Virginia, the state. It is basically the state song of West Virginia. Except the main problem is... None of the landmarks that he talks about are located in West Virginia. <laughs> it's about Western <laughs> Virginia. Uh, it's, uh, uh, apparently, uh, somebody, this is a very hot topic for many a people, but right. Pastor Seth Dean is from Winchester, Virginia. Okay, so I actually grew up in West Virginia yeah. and then moved to Winchester, Virginia. Western, Western Virginia, Virginia. The West region like, of the state of Virginia. Yeah, and uh, well, it's like one of the more northern parts, but it's also like... You know, in the so it's you not Bristol or anything, see but the uh, yeah, you see the Shenandoah River, the Blue Ridge Mountains, yes, yeah, it's all of these things. <laughs> so, how does that go into tonight? Well, one, I just wanted to hear his position on that, and and yes, ladies and gentlemen, he is an ardent defender of the belief that the song is not about the state of West Virginia, although. It's still fun to sing. It's a beautiful song. It's wonderful. It's still fun yeah. to sing with West Virginians. Because <laughs> we don't need a cease breaking bread with this. the West Virginians. Western Virginians do not sing that song like West Virginians do. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and amongst other things. Uh, but it all feeds into tonight because, as I said, Pastor here is from Winchester, Virginia, and we are drinking a beer from Winchester, Winchester Virginia. Virginia. And it's called... Pastoral life. That's right. This is from the Vibrissa, um, the Vibrissa Brewery, and uh, so they are located in Front Royal, Virginia. But they just recently opened a location in Winchester, so it was really cool. We went to Total Wine, and we were just like, we got to review something. So we're yep. looking at like all these these beers, and uh, this sure caught enough. your eye because 
of the name Pastoral Life. Yeah, and I was like, that's cool. I know a pastor. Like, oh, I'm hey. at a store with him right now. I'm with a pastor, and I'm also, you know, kind of want to be a pastor. But, and then, the, but then the Providence. Then he turns it around, and it's from Winchester. Yeah. So, so that's awesome. Yes. Way to go, guys. <laughs> Way to go. Thank no. you for sponsoring Pastor Seth Dean and his pastoral life. Because I'm okay. sure that's why it was made. You're yes. right. Yes. Okay. Uh, disclaimer. They don't actually sponsor us. So. Um, <laughs> Not at all. But I have absolutely no idea about anything other than uh, th- this beer right now. Because they, they opened up in Winchester after I moved away. Mm. So. Um, do you want to just open this open? But yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's and, open uh, this let's open. Let's get into it. And That's the best way to open things. Make it open. Yeah, amen. Um, and I've never had a quote-unquote American pale ale. Hmm. So this will be interesting. I'm sure it'll have the same flavor profile as an IPA, but to the king. To the king. Okay. That tastes like an IPA. An IPA. But, but, wait, wait, wait. There is something distinctly different on that first sip. Oh yeah, like it's almost like a, uh, and I hate to say this because we talked about this controversy in the last episode, but uh, it tastes like an IPA light. Like, like you know what I mean? It's not as aggressive. It's a more palatable IPA. Am I wrong, man? More palatable IPA? I don't know. It's uh, but it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. It uh, it tastes like the color of the can. <laughs> <laughs> it really does <laughs> man mm. well hold that thought um it's five point five point one i'm not knocking you guys but usually ipas are like a little bit heavier 7.2 yeah. you know like something like a little bit like it makes it i don't want to say worth it because again i'm not trying to diminish there, this but this is the pastoral life though this is <laughs> Let's be sober-minded. <laughs> Bittersweet. Uh, <laughs> if you can't handle me at my 5.5, <laughs> you don't deserve me at my 7.8. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, so on that, before we we drop um, more notes on the taste and then, of course, our our actual ratings, can you tell us a little bit, Pastor Seth Dean, about the pastoral life? The pastoral pros, cons, life. Things, things unseen. To parishioners, you know? Yes, uh, much to everyone's surprise, the pastoral life can be surprisingly political. Mm. <laughs> Man, I wonder if there's been any social media debacles recently with pastors that could... Strange yeah. how that happens. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, um, but, uh, but what about the, something good? <laughs> what about something good? Let's, <laughs> don't go downhill, not that fast. Bitter sweet. We have to have the sweet, bittersweet. Yeah, so, uh, but the, the other aspect of the pastoral life is that you actually get to be an under-shepherd uh, to people who who are in the hand of God. And they've they've come to Christ... And they are looking to you for the explanation of his word and also the example of how that's lived out, Mm. Uh, the ministry to them in times of great need and times of great confusion, uh, but also sharing in the joys and celebrations of everyday life. And, And one of the the greatest things about pastoral life, and this is applicable actually to to all men and women is that your first ministry is to your family. I knew you were going to weave that in there. So yeah. if you didn't, I was going to say, you know, you always say yeah. pastor Seth. Uh, <laughs> so, and, uh, and the reason why that's important is one of the qualifications of a, an elder in the Bible and in all of the respects of, of either an elder or a deacon, 
you are to be judged on your relationship with your wife and your relationship with your children and their conduct, the order of your household. Yep. Um, all of these things are to be looked at because an unqualified man isn't going to care for his wife. He's or, not going to yeah. care for his children. Or the household of God if he can't take up his own household. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah, the pastoral life is very sweet. And it's... <laughs> And I say that after saying like it's very political. Yeah. It's very sweet because because if you care for your family the way that Christ cares for you and the family and the church, then when you step into that role of a pastor, it's going to be it's going to be more natural because you're not forcing anything. You're not trying to fake it till you make it. You've already understood the foundational aspects of it. And uh, now you're going to run into issues because one, you're ministering to your family, but now you're ministering to people who are in the family of God, who don't look at you like family, but you know, willing to fight. And, They'll get there. They'll get yeah. there. <laughs> so, so you have to have patience and, and all of that, but. And good hops. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that uh, because it actually won me over a little bit more to this particular can. Oddly enough, because I was thinking, well, I mean, look at the blue collar aesthetic. I can't get mad at this barn and pasture and the, you know, <laughs> yeah, on this can. So, and the folks at Vibrissa, hey, I actually want to try more from you guys. Yeah. Um, and and like, just to quickly review our new rating scale, right? One to three is Blah. horrible Blah. dog water. Don't even look at it at the store, let alone buy it. Four to seven is, hey, you know what? Pretty good. To I would get it again. Yeah. Eight mm -hmm. to 10 is like sensational, you know, once in a month, once in a year, once in a lifetime right. kind of beer. Right. After you kill uh, the can, you stuff it and you mount it on your wall. Yes. And you're proud that to say that you tasted that. Yeah. <laughs> so the, que the question is. Oh, and Pastor, I tasted that in 23. Pastor Seth, how do you rate pastoral life? Man, that is difficult, <laughs> honestly, mm -hmm. because because it doesn't taste like an IPA. Like I'm, I'm actually not used to this. No, it's definitely it's got the initial profile of an IPA, but there are some distinctions. And so I'm trying to think like the to rate it on its own merits. Plus, uh, just thinking, you know, if I if I actually went to their brewery and I ordered food, I would probably order this like on draft. And yeah, but okay. Cause I can imagine eating this with a burger and French fries. No, no. We, and we, here's the thing I was going to say, riddle me this Batman. We, um, the very first review we ever did was a double IPA. Yeah. And that thing was a tank. Yeah. It was awesome. And we also, but, but we also said it go, it would go well with burger and fries. Mm -hmm. So in light of that, um, I think this is honestly, it almost tastes like a cross between a traditional IPA and like a Coors. Interesting take. Yeah, that's that's my take. Here I stand. I, I will have no <laughs> other. And I will give it 6.5. I knew you were going to say that. No. Yeah. <gasps> For you Pentecostals out there, we're doing good. <laughs> no, right before you said that, 6.5 came yeah. to mind. 6.5. Um, we're doing good Pentecostals. There you go. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would land on 6.5. Um, Because I, I would... I'd probably put this about a seven. 
you are always again, as we said last episode, you're, all, you're more generous than I. Because yeah. you're the pastor, and I mean, it no. is pastoral life. Ah. Seven, a complete number. <laughs> yeah. The creation week, the days to build the, the tabernacle. Beer, I give it a ten on the name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think a seven, a solid seven, seven point two. Uh, because, mm. I mean, I think it's good. Um, this probably wouldn't be my my go to. Just be, my personal preference. And like I've said it before, I go for dark beers. Yep. Yeah, and so I'm trying to like not let my personal preference get in the way. Thinking if I ever had a hankering for a beer and I was in Winchester and I was like, I would go to Vibrissa. Yeah, because of this beer. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're in Winchester or you're around there, I mean, go to Vibrissa and try their beers because one, they're in Winchester and I'm from Winchester, and you know we could be cool guys, you know. And uh, but no, I think I think seven. 7.8 7.8 keep coming to mind. And I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, wow. All right. We're jumping. We're jumping. Uh, what, what we need eventually for our website is like a graph that shows what you and I have rated things on in the past. And and I promise you folks, you'll see that this man is always very kind. <laughs> not that I'm not trying to be. It is a very tasty Cool beer. is such a curmudgeonly. So, so, <laughs> the guy who's the, like, oh, I drink beer in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Uh, but I will say that the more we have these uh, IPAs, they're kind of growing on me in terms of thinking about the summer because I feel like IPAs go good with warm weather. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we got to move on. Yes. We got to move on. Thank you so much, you folks at Vibrissa and the wonderful folks of Winchester for this man and this beer. So to the king. To the king. All right, Cole. So now we have enjoyed this lovely pastoral life. Mm. And part of pastoral life is administering the sacraments. So uh, I want to talk to you about a topic that we touched on slightly in Mm. episode two, and that is about um, communion. Mm -hmm. Now, as you can probably guess where this is going, since you're watching the Doctrines (laughs) of of Grains Grains. podcast, um, and of the two sacraments, um, lately, no one has been using alcohol for baptisms, baptisms, but we did tell you, we did show you on one of our posts that there was a point in church history where we did that. Yeah, anyway. it's like our first post ever, I think. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Uh, Go check it out, Beer and Church History. Anyway, but we have to talk about grape juice or wine in communion. Oof, man, that's tough. And as Americans, that's actually a question. And uh, as of the last. Yeah, 80 it's year, almost, 90 years? almost 100 years. Almost 100. Oh, no, almost, definitely is 100 years Yeah, now. it's 100 years. We're getting old. Um, you, I'm old, Gandalf. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> so, uh, um, now, it, it, when I listened through uh, Doug Wilson's talk on this, mm. on the Lord's Supper, um, he talked about how this is unique to Americans. Absolutely. Um, and is not unique if you were to go over to Europe. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Like, if you went over to, if someone from Europe were to visit us, and they were to hear about grape juice and communion, they'd be like, uh, what? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what you guys doing? Yep. Uh, and like, likewise, there are things they, they do that we would just be like, uh, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is unique to us because of prohibition. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, and we talked about that as a cold open to, or an intro to, which to the second episode. episode yeah. Yep. Second episode. So let's dive into this, right? Mm-hmm. So I will respond to your general question with more questions, right? Did so, I ask a question? You were you were trying to. It was it was cute. It was cute. You were trying to. You were like so cold. Anyway, so Doug Wilson. Uh, anyways, <laughs> so so let me respond to the general question of wine or grape juice. Um, so Pastor Seth, you've got a wonderful family. You've got property, 
if you wanted to go purchase a firearm in, a, in accordance with the Second Amendment, right? Um, and, and you said, you know what, Cole, I trust you're from the South. You know something about guns, and I trust you to go get one for me. And I came back to you with a Nerf gun. Mm, yeah. Did I? And then you, and you say, what is this? And I say, well, it's a kind of gun. <laughs> this is a gun. Right? Uh, probably not sufficient, right? If I... Uh, if I go back to my days of courting my beautiful bride, love mm-hmm. you, honey, and I say, hey, we're going to go to this great Italian pr- uh, place called Olive Garden, right? Uh, or maybe something fancier. She loves Olive Garden, though, right? Living the high and, life. And uh, we're planning on getting un, you know, unlimited breadsticks because those things are crack cocaine. Everybody does. Yep. And never become unlimited. That's right. <laughs> and, then, and maybe some red wine, right? We order that from the waiter. The waiter shows up with saltine crackers and Welch's grape juice. Is that sufficient? And then he places it on your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> or you peel it back from a saran wrap and a shot glass. Yeah. So, Don't get me so started. I hope you folks see where I'm going with this. This is very simple. And this line of reasoning, apart from just being logical, uh, was articulated very powerfully by the theologian J.E. Adams in the 80s, uh, not even about the Lord's Supper, but actually about baptism in a a short little work I recommend, it's like 70 pages, The Mode and Method of Baptism. But his larger point was we cannot, uh, with ambiguity or with, uh, we cannot arbitrarily just choose the mode and method of the sacraments because the mode itself is communicating something about the sacrament, right? The metaphysically and symbolically. Um, so the mode really does matter. And so when we use grape juice, or we pervert the sacraments in some other way, or other liturgical practices, uh, at the very least, we are saying that this is something that God has not been clear about or that he doesn't care about, right. which both of those could be problematic. And at worst, we could be in sin. Mm-hmm. So so then the, from there, we have to have the discussion, but all built on the presupposition that no, like they were drinking wine. <laughs> they were drinking wine. So yeah. that's my initial take. You want to? Okay. I have other things to say, but you, right. you go ahead. Right, and uh, our chaser conversations generally are becoming more, um, more like drinking whiskey. So, <laughs> yeah. So one of the let's go back to why why does this happen? One, it's prohibition, but really it came about as a result of first wave feminism. Mm. Oh, and, oh, we're getting into that today. <laughs> All right, it is whiskey. All right, go ahead, please, please. This is this is listen up here, folks. So, so the feminist movement and in the uh, in the early days of the prohibition movement, before prohibition actually got ratified, it was very powerfully. It was pushed by women, mm-hmm. women who literally like went around with a sign like uh, "Any lips that drink wine won't kiss uh, yep. kiss mine" or something like that. Yeah, that's and, true. And um, you know, with their hatchets, and that they no, would, like, that. That's a real open, thing. They yeah. would bust open barrels, um, and that was their holy war against against alcohol, the evil alcohol. Uh, and you can so, look this all up, by the way. This is so, not making this up. So this movement was led by women, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course they had good intentions. We're going to clean up civilization mm-hmm. by getting rid of this evil, mm-hmm. as if it was the original sin. Yep. Guess what? It didn't happen. So, <laughs> but they yep. had to do some strategic things throughout, through in order to get to prohibition, mm-hmm. which you know we we don't really have time to touch on. But no. thank you so much, feminists, for for uh, income tax. 
you know what? <laughs> Man, we're really just <laughs> dumping it all out there. Yeah, so, folks, everything he's saying, I promise you, you can Google it, you can look it up. And also, the success of the prohibitionist movement on behalf of feminists was so popular, it was the beginning of an unraveling of so many liturgical practices that were right. practiced for hundred thousands of years yeah. to include head coverings. But anyway, um, a number of liturgical practices, those things are not the only ones. We've they, now lit a match. We're just dumping alcohol right? out and lighting a match. It's, it's like, the pastoral life. That's what it is. So <laughs> welcome to the chaser, folks. <laughs> <laughs> if this beer weren't hard enough, yeah. this truth so, is going to get you. So the point is, so, there's, so, a, there's so, so much more to this yeah. than... Well, just grape juice. So as we, you know, get to prohibition, where finally, like, you know, alcohol is illegal and and people just don't want it anymore. Like ever since then, it's been a hundred years, and people are still scared stiff that when they think about drinking alcohol, they're thinking about sinning in yep. some way. Now on if, Sunday, they'll drink every other day, but not Sunday. <laughs> and uh, and that has that has continued on in the practice of communion mm -hmm. because People are afraid to offend others in the congregation. They're afraid that they're going to lead them into sin. Now, there is consideration that needs to be made. Like if you are, if you do have legitimate recovering alcoholics in your congregation, mm -hmm. I think that's something worth considering, mm -hmm. especially in this day and age. Now that we're on the other side of prohibition, yeah. But I mean, you or you a need pregnant to, woman or other considerations. You need yeah. to care for your for your your, your congregation. Your flock. Um, but yeah. for the most part, if you're saying, oh, this, this could be a sin issue, then, then you are considering wrongly. You are thinking yep. wrongly about communion uh, because you're basing it off of a tradition that recently started and has its roots in feminism, which is ungodly. And it's a practice that's influenced by women, and you know, we Paul would not suffer a, a woman to exercise authority over a man. And so now we're on this side of things, and yeah. and the idea of drinking wine for communion in, for Americans is is alien, absolutely alien to to not just at the present moment in comparison with other Christian communities around the world, but again, you're talking about a recent historical phenomena as opposed to two thousand years of church history. Right. Um, so. Go ahead. So the point is like <laughs> when it was instituted, how did Christ institute it? Mm -hmm. He instituted it with wine. Yep. Legitimate wine. And people can say, oh, no, it, it was new wine. So it wasn't really fermented. So it had oh, yeah. a little alcohol. What's Yeah, what's so goofy about that, we were talking about this earlier today, is every time that I've dug into this topic, those who, whether it be at the Lord's institution or in the Old Testament, they go and they look at passages with wine or strong drink, which is beer, and they say, well, it really wasn't fermented like stuff is today, and it didn't have a high alcoholic volume content, whatever. I never see their citations. Yeah. Always purely conjecture, as opposed to those who have done the math, who've done the homework, done the exegesis, you always see their theological, historical, and archaeological evidence that says, no, 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 this was 5 to 20% ABV. Mm -hmm. Like, we know that grammatically, historically, theologically, and archaeologically. Yeah. Like, thank you. Thank you, uh, Jeffrey Myers, for the hard work, <laughs> and Ralph Smith for the work that you guys have done to prove this. And so, like... 
we're not saying, hey, go get smashed when you take communion. <laughs> Paul warns against that <laughs> yeah, in First exactly. Corinthians. Yeah. But what we are saying is that we need to look back and say, when Jesus Christ said, take this cup, this is the, the new covenant in my blood uh, that is shed for the forgiveness of sins. He is he's showing wine. He is drinking wine. The disciples drank wine. And he said, do this in remembrance of yep. me. And so he has laid down that practice in that sacrament so that we can model it because there is something about the wine. And we mm-hmm. talked about this again in our second episode. And we're going to keep talking about it. like this. I was just thinking to myself, this is part one of a chaser because yeah, yeah, there's so much more saying this. We yeah. will, we'll, I mean, there's so much to talk about this because you know, always be reforming. Like you, we got something wrong a hundred years ago and now it's time for, for this generation to start thinking about this biblically again. Yep. Amen. And like, and I, I'm not saying like, Oh, churches out there doing this, they're in sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, let's dig into it Mm -hmm. and let us rediscover what Christ intended when he instituted this with wine. Why is that significant? Why did he do that? And that's way too much for us to unpack in this chase. Yeah, yeah, in this chase. I was going to say, we got to move on. But that's just a taste. Yeah. And (laughs) good. Anyway, that was a good pun. In closing, (laughs) I would say two things. One, they might not be in sin, but I'd say the KJV only us who are like, it was never wine and you're sinful if you're using wine in communion, that would be sin. Um, For whole other reasons. Yes. Secondly, um, at the end of the day, if you're not convinced, I'd say, I'd say follow the words of the church we've been visiting in Jacksonville as we try to plant one. Uh, they have a mixed palate of predominantly wine, but then grape juice in the middle. And they say, they, they tell the congregation that every time they take from the supper and they say, drink with the liberty of conscience to the glory of God. Right. And that I think is a healthy way to at least start this investigation. So, and the, uh, if I were to give a resource for you to, to listen to, if you have the Canon plus app, which you should, I would go on to the Canon plus app and I would look for, uh, Doug Wilson's talk on the Lord's supper. Uh, it's a four, I believe it's four sermon series that he preached at, uh, Christ church in Moscow when his congregation was about to make the switch from, purely grape juice to now offering wine and grape juice uh, at the same time. And he gives a, he he lays it out wonderfully. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's a great encouragement. I hope that it's encouraging to you. I don't, I'm, I'm done. You're trying to get off the box. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'm done. <laughs> Beer in, uh, and the Bible by Ralph Smith also on Canon Plus is a good one. But that was a spicy chaser. That was a really spicy yeah. chaser. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Let's Thank wash you. that down. Yeah, that's <laughs> Chapter three, the knowledge of God naturally implanted in the human mind. There are three sections. One, the knowledge of God being manifested to all makes the reprobate without excuse. Universal belief and acknowledgement of the existence of God. Two, an objection that religion and the belief of a deity are the inventions of crafty politicians. Refutation of the object, the objection. The, this universal belief confirmed by the examples of wicked men and atheists. Sounds like presuppositionalism to me. Anyway. Careful, uh, Cole. Yeah. <laughs> In section three, confirmed also by the vain endeavors of the wicked to banish all fear of God from their minds. Conclusion that the knowledge of God is naturally implanted 
in the human mind. All right, we'll see how, how much we could cram into these remaining minutes. That's right. So um, what is fantastic about this particular chapter is that we have gone over the first two chapters now. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the first two chapters, he has covered the, uh, the man's knowledge of himself and how that relates to the knowledge of God. And then in the second chapter, he talks about the knowledge of God himself and let us just a reminder, this is all built on the structure of the Apostles' Creed, and this statement that he's unpacking, even in chapter 3, has to deal with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker, maker of, of heaven, heaven and, and earth. earth. And so that statement, penned by uh, whoever it was, um, as early as the 2nd century AD, um, that is drawn from the truth of Scripture, the truth of God, and so now... And the truth that we all know, which yeah. is what he's about to argue. And so now uh, Calvin is in, in the process of unpacking the fact that this is a truth that is stamped mm-hmm. in reality. Yep. on in reality, but also on the human heart itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in scripture, of course, and 30,000 foot view, remember, because this is all in defensive Protestantism and an accusation towards the Roman Catholic see, he is saying, uh, in one sense, through these three chapters, hey, they have a misunderstanding about the nature of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man uh, and the nature of man knowing God. That's right. So, but he'll he'll get to more of that later. Right. But let's swan dive in. Let's belly flop. Okay. Know? I'm going to start by reading Genesis chapter oh, one. Oh, okay. All right. Verses one. <laughs> puts puts the institutes down. Go ahead. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That in itself is such a... A controversial statement. And if you cannot come to the scriptures right away and say, I believe that, or if you come to the scriptures and you're like, I believe that, but yep. I believe it in the face of this scientific world that I live in, mm-hmm. um, then you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we're getting a lot of this comes from uh, God's creation of man. And he's. Well, wait, wait, wait. Before you move on, read, that, read the rest of that verse. And then into the second real quick. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And, and darkness, darkness was on the face of the deep. So right off the bat, we have what theologians and apologists have referred to as the Trinity of Trinities. We see that the preexistent state was in need of a Trinitarian solution. It was dark, void. And what was the, I'm forgetting the other one. Oh, void, dark. Void, dark. No. <laughs> without form. Without form. It was void. Void. And it was dark. And darkness over the face of the deep. So we need a Trinitarian solution for that, but also consider the fact that the one in the many, the one triune God, having existed outside of time, space, and matter, in one sentence, all of that is remedied with a Trinitarian solution for time, space, and matter by saying, let there be light. Let there be light. That you have a, you have a time mm-hmm. when he said it, and of course he announced it over space and with matter. Right. So Trinity of Trinities. And so uh, as you go through Genesis 1, it is the creation of everything mm-hmm. and God speaking it into existence until you get to, um, until you get to uh, later verses, verse uh, 26. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit also uh, yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Um, it goes on. I'll, I'll stop it for there. Yeah, I was wondering. But, but listen, th- my point in reading all of that is this is where Calvin is deriving his doctrine because man was created after everything else. And then after everything else, he was created in the image of God. Yep. And then as he was created, God then commissioned him and told him all of creation I have given to you. Yep, as a regent, yep. And so our existence is to go and subdue these things. And so our denial of God is a, is, is a willful suppression, not only of God himself, but of our nature, which yep. we're going to get into in the Institutes. Yep. But I wanted to start there because I didn't just want to live in the Institutes for this. No, no, hey, for this I'm episode. not going to, no, don't go to the Bible. <laughs> I'm not Catholic. Oh, there's another, just like, <laughs> oh man, just like we, last episode. Uh, but no, I, no, I appreciate that. And I, I, again, we can summarize all of that philosophically by saying that the lie of secularism, the lie of uh, scholasticism is that man lives in parallel to the knowledge of God. Well, no, 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 no. We live, uh, as Van Til would say, um, analogous to God. Man is to think his thoughts after God because he is made in God's image. And so, yeah. oh, sorry, were you done? Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, so when you see a fish and you go fishing, your natural state is to think of God because God created that fish, then he created man to subdue that fish. Mm. Yep. If you go and you plant a garden, you eat the fruit of that garden, then your mind should be going towards God because God gave that fruit to you. He commissioned it for you. He didn't bar it from you. If he had, it would not be in your nature to go after it. But these things that we do and enjoy, the reason that we build roads and, and make the earth Eden and, you know, just subdue and take dominion is in yeah, and it's only to man. Again, we talked about that last episode. It's you right. don't see ant eaters, you know, worrying about their four hundred one k or the stock market, right? Or you know, anyway. Um, and so, so the reason I started there is because the the title of this chapter is the knowledge of God naturally implanted in the human mind. Yep. So now we can start. <laughs> Here's so really this one. Uh, he's more blunt and direct in this one than the uh, previous chapters so far, which means there's less. Uh, mic drop moments, in my humble opinion, um, but it'll allow us to very quickly, I think, knock out these points as they come. So here's the first sentence. I warn you it's long, but there's some really good nuggets to unpack. That there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity we hold to be beyond dispute. Since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. So I mentioned the 30,000 foot view earlier on purpose. 
Calvin is combating the Thomistic uh, idea that there are men, in fact, in the remote regions of the world, having not seen a cross, that have some bit of excuse. But one, that disagrees with Paul. And two, he is saying here, I'll I'll read it again. Um, We hold beyond dispute that man has an idea of deity. Since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. Pretending ignorance. Yes. We we have to understand when when you, dear Christian, whom, whom we love, when you are creating this idea or you've been led to this idea that again, um, you know, Island stranded in the Pacific right now with an indigenous tribe that has never seen a church has never seen a cross has an excuse. You are making God to be unjust, right? That he has not sufficiently revealed himself. And of course that at judgment day, he wouldn't have the right to tell them that they have sinned against him. Right. That's Paul's thrust in Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 23 that we covered last episode. Um, you don't mean that. Most Christians don't mean that, but that's that's how weighty these things are. And rather, you know, we should not despair in that reality. We should uh, worship because how merciful and gracious is God that he has so clearly revealed himself to all men, particularly and especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But um, I just want to get that across because, again, so many of us have been misled to think that God is unjust for not having yet shown that cross to that indigenous group. Um, but again, you're painting God to be a swindler or an un, uh, unjust deity at best or a faulty judge by saying something like that. Right. And so, um, so what he's addressing though is kind of this argument of from an atheistic point of view, like, you know, there is no God basically. So, so this is man without excuse, and uh, we opened the episode with Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So, I mean, the psalmist is even saying, you're a fool if you say in your heart, there is no God. Um, and Calvin is reiterating the biblical doctrine that men are without excuse. Um, I like the, do you mind if I kind of go for it? The, um, the last phrase of that sentence He says that all to a man being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. Now pause. This again is in contrast to at that point in time, Catholic understandings of what is it that man is aiming for in his telos and and what he's created for his end state. Um, We see this so plainly today that atheists, and those who hate God, they still devote their lives to their cause and to them that is worship. They might not call it that. They might not label it as such, but man was made not as homo sapien as the evolutionists would have it, but homo adorian, man who worships. And we are all going to spend our lives for the cause of something, even if that means self, but it is inevitable. And this is something that Calvin is going to hit over and over and over again in this chapter. Yeah. And so uh, he continues in this point to talk about like just the universality of worship, mm-hmm. whether that is idolatry or, or not, whether it's the true worship of the of God. Um, but he uh, he talks about uh, since then, there never has been from the very first any quarter of the globe, any city, any household even without religion. This amounts to a tacit confession confession that a sense of deity is inscribed on every 
heart. No, even idolatry is ample evidence of this fact, of this fact for we know how reluctant man is to lower himself in order to set other creatures above him. He's talking about man's pride. Therefore, when he chooses to worship wood and stone rather than be thought to have no God, it is evident how very strong this impression of a deity must be, since it is more difficult to obliterate it from the mind of man than to break down the feelings of his nature. These certainly being broken down when in opposition to his natural haughtiness, he spontaneously humbles himself before the meanest object as an act of reverence to God. So he's saying idolatry is itself proof that that men have this natural inclination towards worshiping a deity, towards worshiping God, but men just would get it wrong in our because they want to, in our they pride, want to in get our it vanity, yeah. in our foolishness, yeah, because they don't want to humble themselves to something that is actually greater than themselves. So they don't actually want to humble themselves. What they want to do is they still want to be that proud creature above mm -hmm. everything. So that's why they go to wood, stone. Yep. Because yep. Yeah. No, I was going to say two quick things on that is the reason for that, the reason that we want to worship idols is because we desire autonomy. We talked about this in the last episode, and I keep saying that, like the last episode, this, well, last episode, that. It's it was a, a good, it was a good. It was yesterday for us. It's been a month for you. <laughs> it w I thought it was great. But when we opened with discussing the garden, in the garden and and afterward, we have desired complete autonomy from God in our decisions, in our words, in our occupations, in our governments. Man in his sinfulness will always be seeking autonomy as opposed to theonomy, God's law. I don't want to scare anybody. But uh, that's what we're desiring. And so idol idolizing something is our the own the our, it's it's a myth we create to deceive ourselves that um, for in antiquity, it was literally worshiping stone and wood. Although those people knew full and well that it was wood and stone, right. <laughs> that they were dictating what this wood and stone was saying to them, not hearing the living and spoken word from the living God. Um, so it's a bypass way to still have that autonomy. And the second thing I was going to say, uh, was Christians, this still applies to us. Mm -hmm. Like, we should not be taking these words of Calvin as like, yeah, take that atheists or take that Catholics of like, no, 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 like Christians. Like um, he sells L he says later in the institutes that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And so we laugh at these people from antiquity who worshiped wood and stone, but we were, we worship silicone and carbon, right? right. Like um, we have to be very careful about the idols that we hold. And I say that to myself, uh, and, and I know you would as well, because we're just as susceptible to believing one thing and doing another, divorcing orthodoxy from orthopraxy. Or even just being proud. Yeah. yeah. And, and saying, well, I don't idolize anything. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, we can move on to the second point, which is his, mm -hmm. his uh, discussion about uh, people who say things like, oh, religion is just the opiate of the masses or <gasps> religion was, yes, uh, religion was just invented by politicians or, you know, people in high places just to, to pacify, uh, you know, your, your simple mind. Yeah. And so he's, he's getting ready to unload on them. Please. Um, because uh, he does acknowledge that there are people who have used religion for their own personal gain. Mm -hmm. He saw it firsthand. <laughs> yes. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, but he says, yeah, he says, I readily acknowledge that designing men have introduced a vast number of fictions into religion with a view of inspiring the populace with reverence or striking them with terror and thereby rendering them more obsequious. But they never could have succeeded in this had the minds of men not been previously imbued with that uniform belief in God. And so uh, he says, and you know, as that is basically from which this this idea and the sense of religion comes from. And so he's saying uh, the uniform belief in God. That is the only reason why cunning, crafty politicians can use that. Yep. And it's not because they are less evolved or whatever they want to, whatever atheists want to use. Yep. You know, as if they were the more highly evolved because they don't believe in a God or, you know, they force themselves to think there is no God. But he's saying, this is written on the hearts of every man. That's why it succeeds. Mm. So can we just take a moment for a second? Um, this is not to go down too far of a rabbit hole. Brother, you killed that pronunciation. Obsequious? Yes, sir. I was so impressed. I'm sorry. I saw that word coming up. I was like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And then you nailed, nailed it. And I was like, goodness gracious. But anyway, sorry. Back into, the, back into reality. Back on the ranch. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And I think a, a helpful analogy for this that I'm going to butcher, but I did hear it once, is of like what he's saying is, again, these, these crafty men, quote unquote, would have never been successful unless, like he's saying, there was a presupposition of the hearers that, no, but th there is a God, there is an order to the universe, that we owe our worship to someone or something. To say otherwise is to say that uh, a crafty enough man can convince a fish to use slippers. That doesn't... <laughs> It wouldn't, it's not necessary, right? right? Uh, if, in fact, the fish was not intended to swim, but the fish was intended to swim and was given the means to do so right? Um, and could see through the stupidity of needing fins. Right. And in the same way, as the true religion has emerged through the millennia, that is Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, Christians are the ones, I, I, I love how theologians have put it, that Christianity um, delivers men from their insanity, their and their insistence that there is no God, but their own decision, except then again, they've created another deity. We preach sanity to people and that is Christ and Christ crucified. Yeah. Amen. And so in, in section two, he harps on the fact that men who disbelieve God, they are also easily shaken by divine wrath. So that, um, and he uses the, the uh, illustration of Caligula, Emperor Caligula, uh, who, at one point, like, was completely contemptuous of, of deity. I mean, he was one of the most ravenously torturous towards Christians. Um, but on the other hand, he said, uh, none showed greater dread when any indication of divine wrath was manifested. Thus, however unwilling, he shook with terror before the God whom he professedly studied to condemn. <laughs> that's gonna, so that's the fate of all mankind eventually, the ones who revile Christ, is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every man is going to stand before the great white throne of judgment and be confronted with the God that they, they said did not exist. And they will shake in terror. And at that point in time, they will, they will find no comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Brother. I mean, and even, but even in this life, God will not be mocked. 
Yeah. Um, and time and time again, such wicked men, though they triumphed at various moments, um, and many times to Christians' despair, uh, as we see in the Psalms of David saying, like, Lord, why are the wicked triumph, uh, triumphing, right? Uh, God still finds um, his, rest, uh, his resolve in space and time unto those people. If you don't mind, I'm trying to flip uh, to Daniel, where I like that he mentioned Caligula, because that's pretty dope. It's pretty based. Okay. But like you were saying earlier, I'd rather go to the scripture and see an example of this. And a prime rib example, like just mwah, example of this, uh, in Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar pronouncing, professing the exact confession that Calvin's describing. Here you have a pagan king serving a pantheon of polytheistic deities, right? And yet the Lord shakes him with his wrath and uh, and then yet Nebuchadnezzar uh, praises God. Um, it says this, and at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my, mis- and my understanding returned to me. And I was blessed by the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Not only was that a pagan king saying that, that was a pagan king saying that about who? Christ. So not just a, an aloof deity um, that cannot be known and is not personal. No, this was all about the Messiah, the God-man, the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. Absolutely bonkers. And this right? was a proclamation that went around to his entire kingdom. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have seen the, the God of the Most High, which remember Melchizedek was a prophet and priest and king of the Most High, Mm-hmm. God, and then we know that Christ is in the order of Melchizedek. So it's it's really just you know the, right. the Bible just being awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Bible just being awesome as always. Yeah. But so so Calvin again, this is not just him making a connection to history. This is a biblical precedent. Um. So we can move on to uh, to section three. Yeah. If that's okay with you. Yeah. Absolutely. The last thing I'd say is that last sentence. He says, "Even the wicked themselves, therefore, are an example of the fact that some idea of God always exists in in every human mind." Uh, but yeah, please take us to three because I know right. I've been babbling. So no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of y'all won't get that. But yeah, that's it's okay. <laughs> Rewind it. Um, all men of sound judgment will therefore hold that a sense of deity is indelibly engraved on the human heart and that this belief is naturally engendered in all and thoroughly fixed as it were in our very bones is strikingly attested by the contumacy of the wicked who, though they struggle furiously, are unable to extricate themselves from the fear of God. Okay, so um, let's just... uh, I think we can probably end there. Take just a... Yeah. Take a a, a moment, (laughs) if you will. Hold on to something. (laughs) So here we are, 2023, and... There's a lot of concern, a lot of a lot of concern about the elites, right? Like, wh- how are we going to live? Like, how can they get away with this? That kind of thing. Hmm. They're doing everything because they cannot shake the fear of God. Every action of hate or disruption or chaos or whatever you want to get into, all the money that exchanges hands, the people who are suicided. Oof. All that stuff happens because these people cannot shake the fear of God, knowing that they will answer to him one day. Mm-hmm. 
And that is inevitable. That is why that is why this stuff is happening because they are raging in vain against Christ the King. So when you see these people do this, remember that it is a confirmation that Jesus lives mm. and that these people will die and that they are flopping around <laughs> because of it. <laughs> I was so tempted in the middle of that to say, you listen here, Clintons and Rockefellers and Gates. And anyway, uh, amen, brother. That was great. That was encouraging. It's true. And uh, again, God will not be mocked. I think in the, in the, in the grand uh, summary of this whole chapter, in connection to what he said, he's basically trying to grab you, the readers, kindly but sternly by the shoulders and say unto you, the world is all pretending. The world is all pretending that the triune God is not out there when he is, no kidding, in their lungs. He has given them the sight to their eyes and they know it. We all know it. Um, And as I was telling Pastor Seth the other day, there's a fantastic analogy from Rush Dooney of the, uh, it's it's famous, but it's been used in other places, but the emperor having no clothes. Basically, the analogy right. goes, there was an emperor who uh, asked his mystical wizards to construct a royal robe for him that was so royal, so grand, it would be known for ages. And they fooled him and gave him a magic robe that could not be seen, but everyone pretended to see something. So as the emperor paraded through the streets, everyone went along with it. Knowing full well he was naked. Like, oh, wow. That, yes. that, that is. The, I can see it. Can't you see it? That's the state of the unbeliever is they're looking around at what is so clearly obvious and yet still saying, I don't see it. Right. Yeah. But but that should humble us as Christians because Christ said that of us, that unless the Father, John 6, uh, 44, that uh, unless the Father enables, we will not go to him. He kept telling the crowds over and over, you have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. He's quoting Isaiah. That is the state of unrepentant man until he's regenerated. Right. So praise be to God for his grace that he has given us this marvelous light. Absolutely. And also, if you are, if you happen to be listening to this, and you struggle with unbelief, um, then my encouragement to you is that you are struggling against the truth. There is a God. And you may be wrestling with, okay, which one? And so admittedly, we're not there yet in the doctrines. But I will tell you that the God that you you are struggling whether or not you believe in, he has revealed himself. He is alive. He is a well. He is well, and he has revealed himself in the person of Christ Jesus. So if you are looking for the truth, you need to look to Jesus Christ because he is the truth. He is the way to the Father. He is the truth, and he is the life. So the death that you feel inside, the, the, the terror that you fear from God himself, that is all laid in Christ Jesus because he bore our death on the cross, bore our sin, our death, and the infinite justice and wrath of God on the cross on our behalf for our unbelief and our sin and was raised to life because he himself was sinless. And when you trust in Christ for that work, you trust in him for your salvation, you will be saved and you are adopted in the family of God. You have access to the father. You are made righteous by Christ's righteousness. So come to Christ. If you are wrestling Come to Christ and lay it all down because none of us were, were there 
unless God draw, drew us. And so we're here now purely by his grace and not by our works. Amen. Come to him whom all other religions have something to say of, and yet he answers to no one. Right. Everyone has an opinion on Christ, and yet Christ has said nothing of all these other fanciful things. Thank you, Pastor Seth, for that gospel word. Thank you, Calvin, for base doctrines. And uh, thank you, Fabrissa, for the pastoral life. That was a good episode. Yeah. Thank you, guys. That's it? No, it's not. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Cole, how goes the world? The world goes not well, but But the the kingdom kingdom comes. comes. Sorry. (laughs) 